episode of the Trajectory Africa Track 9, my guest artist is Adenike Sharif. Adenike is a co-founder of Future Africa, a fund manager that invests early in mission-driven founders solving hard problems for large markets. Prior to Future Africa, Adenike focused on content strategy and storytelling for technology companies in Africa and beyond. Her work has appeared in various international publications, including the Huffington Post. Our last episode featured a hard-hitting conversation about what it takes to be a money-making, high-performing fund manager with a traditional GPLP structure. In this episode, we focus on fund structure innovation by walking through Future Africa's origin story. Adenike and I talk about how she plotted a seemingly unlikely path into VC, how Future Africa came to be, why her blank slate thinking inspired the birth of Future Africa Collective, how market-creating innovations constitute a significant investment opportunity, what thorny challenges can emerge while you're innovating, and what opportunities lie ahead for Future Africa. If the previous episode was for the quants, this one is for the poets. I hope you enjoy the show. Adenike, welcome to the Trajectory Africa. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm super pleased to be here as well. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. So you're the second person in a row I'm recording with whom I didn't really know before. But of course, I've known of you for a while due to your work with Future Africa. And after I learned a little bit about the challenges that GPs can encounter with the LPGP model through the research conducted for Chasing Outliers, a report on early stage investing in Africa that I co-authored earlier this year, I knew that I wanted to do an episode about the next generation of venture funding models. So I'd ask one of my previous guests for an intro to you, and here we are. So with that background, it would be really great to start by learning a bit more about you. So Adenike, can you please share with us a bit about your background, as well as how and why you decided to launch Future Africa? Absolutely. It will be my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me once again, Tayo. So I like to call myself the accidental investor. <laughs> you know, when you're doing your five-year or 10-year plan and you're writing out the things that you want to do, investor was never one of the things that I wrote there, not because I didn't think I could do it at the time or anything. It wasn't just something that was on my radar. I mean, I hate or hated math. So it was just <laughs> one of those things that I was like, yeah, Anything in finance is obviously not a career choice for me. But I started actually working really early. I got my first proper job when I was around 15, 16. Oh, wow. And it was as a content creator writing for a tech startup here in Nigeria. They didn't really care how old you were. It was just, oh, can you write? I had been writing long before then. I had my little blog on the internet. And I was like, oh yeah, this is what I do. Find stuff on the internet research, put it together and write about different locations here in Nigeria and across Africa. And I was getting paid a thousand naira per article that I would submit that would get approved. That was really cool pocket money for me because, you know, I had so much free time. I could just put those together and make some money. And that blossomed into discovering that there was a path in writing, something that just came so easily to me and content creation and setting up to be able to offer those services to companies. So from there, I got another internship at a media company, tech media company in Nigeria as well, writing for the youth publication. And then 
over time, I just got into the whole content creation for tech companies in addition to my writing, learning about marketing, helping companies sell their products. I freelanced a bit and then I got really interested in mental health and started to write articles for companies who were offering mental health services. At that point, I realized that companies all over the world could use my services and I could get paid in dollars. So I would go on Upwork and I'll consult for companies and I'll write for sites like the Huffington Post and Bella Niger. So that was my thing, right? Content creation and content marketing, because I actually then went really deep into content marketing. So in 2019, I met E, and he mentioned that he wanted to build out a publication for tech entrepreneurs or people who are thinking of becoming tech entrepreneurs here in Africa. And that was just right up my alley, right? Talk to people, do interview, do sourcing, and we were going to do something really interesting and um, have programming. We were calling it What Happened to the Future. Basically, in the year 2000, Nigeria had this thing called Vision 2020. And as of 2019, it was very clear that we were nowhere close to achieving Vision 2020. And so we were going to do a whole thing interrogating that and the progress that technology companies had made and all of that. So, yeah, that was the original intent behind Future Africa at the time. Now, he had been angel investing on the side. But in our talks with companies, we would find out that Everyone was sort of tired of being patronized, asked questions, answering questions, reading articles, all of that. What they really, really needed and weren't getting was capital, right? And we were sort of doing this informally. I mean, he was investing as an angel. He had the network to introduce them to people, coach them through like their Y Combinator applications. And that seemed to be what people were most interested in, not reading any articles or, you know, hearing, okay, here's how you do X, here's why this didn't happen. So we sort of started, as the year started to wind out, you know, looked at all the content that we had done and everything and said, it's very evident what the market really wants. And so we should probably go try and raise a fund. And I was looking forward to building out what the publication for that fund would be like. You know, you have like the first rounds and the A16s, they have excellent publications for their fund. But at the time, it was like, okay, so yeah, building a publication for the fund, doing the groundwork for all of that. Interesting, but there was work that needed to be done. We were a really small team at the time in order to set up the fund. So in this podcast episode, you probably hear me talk about my faith a lot. I'm a Christian. I talk to God a lot. He talks back to me and God was like, hey, you need help, you know, with putting this fun thing together. You know, volunteer to work with him more on the fun side of things. And the person who was working with him as sort of like his assistant had just left at the time. So God was like, oh, ask him and tell him what you want to be his assistant. And I'm like, huh? Well, like, why would, I, <laughs> why would I want to be, you know, his assistant? And, and I think it's one of those things where sometimes to start a new journey, you just have to take the easiest step in because asking to work on the fun stuff, I think the answer I would have gotten was, yeah, I like the offer. I like the approach. 
but we might want to get someone who is more qualified and in-depth in this. So from working as his assistant and really just doing assistant stuff, like scheduling his meetings since the publication was on pause at the time, scheduling his meetings, conversations, joining him in meetings and conversations. I started to do little things like if a VC was coming into the country, I wanted to meet people in the tech ecosystem here, putting together like little cocktails, you know, for them to meet and interact. And that started to give me ideas like, okay, so obviously there needs to be a bridge between all of these VCs and these startup founders. So I was going to do a program where we would get US VCs who wanted to meet African VCs and then just put these companies in front of them. And I had started working on that. And then, you know, from along the line, being his assistant, I found out about what his syndicates meant. So what had happened was there was a deal. And sometimes when there's a deal like that, because, you know, I mentioned earlier that he used to invest as an angel. He'll get together with a couple of friends. They'll set up an entity, pool their money until they reach the minimum check size for that deal and then invest. So it was just all of these new things as concepts that I was learning. Now, keep in mind that because I didn't have a traditional investing background, it helped me see how things could be done. And I didn't think I was being innovative. I think there's just that risk of when you're so immersed in a thing, you never think of doing it any other way. Right. So, we were, you know, he was trying to raise the fund. He was in the U.S. at the time. He would set up meetings. And this was end of 2019, early 2020, and then COVID struck. And when that happened, obviously, all of those meetings started to gracefully wind down. (laughs) Nobody wanted to (laughs) care about backing a first-time fund manager in Africa. Like, that was such a wild thing. It's just been a few short months, but I'm being completely honest when I say, like, early 2020, None of the serious investors, like fund managers or LPs, wanted to hear anything about investing in Africa, especially with word about COVID. Everyone was a bit afraid, trying to be battle-ready, trying to manage their assets well, trying to weather the storm. And so it was just one of those things where it was almost like, okay, so let's just ride this out and wait until whatever happens to COVID. Like, I think we were also naive then thinking that in the next three months, the world would be sorted out and <laughs> you know, we could go back to normal. And of course, now we know that no such thing exists anymore. But there was this interesting company that we had been talking to, Tambua Health, right? And because I was doing assistant stuff, I had seen the emails. He was interested in investing in them, writing a check, had introduced them to a couple of investors, had a meeting with the founder in SF when he was visiting, when the founder was visiting SF, all of that. And he was trying to sell off some of his personal stock, in order to be able to get the liquidity to invest in that company, right? But that fell through. We were trying to raise the fund. That didn't work. So it was almost like this precarious situation where we couldn't invest through no fault of ours, but we were also seeing that 
other people weren't so interested in investing in the company. It's a hardware health technology company out of Africa. You know what I mean? In the middle of a global pandemic, instead of people to approach it that, wow, this is revolutionary, they're solving an important problem, nobody wanted to buy it. It was almost like, yeah, we hear you, we see you, we like what you're doing, um, definitely keep it up. <laughs> we are not going to invest right. in this business. And that seemed very crazy to me at the time. So again, like I said earlier, new perspectives. I just said, we're trying to raise this fund. It's not working. We've always been able to introduce people, but obviously that's not really working out because of the pandemic. Everyone is trying to be safe. Recall I had had the idea of putting companies here in front of US VCs and all of that. That had been called the collective, you know, a collective of companies to put in front of VCs. And you probably do like a demo day and they would write checks into those companies and all of that. And after that, I had then learned about the concept of syndicates. So I said, you have this great network. We all have this great network. So friends who can put like $10,000 down into companies, pandemic or no pandemic, like it's a thing that they're going to do. They haven't stopped writing angel checks. What if we invited them to join us to co-invest in this company? What would that look like? And it seemed like such a crazy idea because we didn't have the infrastructure to get it done. Typically, when you would do syndicate deals, he would just work with a lawyer between him and his friends. But now we were talking about inviting external people and all of that. So we had to, first of all, find out how to set up SPVs in the US. SPVs stand for Special Purpose Vehicles. And we're told that the best way to get it done was to work with AngelList. So then came the hunt to find an introduction to the guys at AngelList. <laughs> right. And convince them that allowing an angel in Africa to set up an SPV on their platform was worth their time. I think that there was definitely that subtlety of them kind of not taking us really seriously because the funds that they know invest in Africa, either traditional VC funds or foreign established funds, so I investing in companies here. So they were a bit hesitant, but at the end of the day, it's a service, right? So it was one of those things where the process might be long, but I feel like they definitely stretched it quite a bit although no fault of theirs, nobody wants to waste their time on anything. So we signed up for that. I remember just working to get out the initial blog post that we were going to send out to the public, asking people who were interested to fill a small form so we can send them the investment memo. I remember Googling how to write an investment memo and putting up <laughs> all the information about the deal together, putting it right. up on Angel. It's just... Putting this thing together, at that point, my thoughts were towards that the entrepreneur did get some cash to be able to run the company because what they were doing was so great. And we put word out. We got 200 people fill the form just by posting it on Twitter, screened the people who filled the form for things like accreditation criteria. Like I had to learn very, very fast and just see how to put things together in 48 to 72 hours we had a hundred and thirty eight thousand dollars for this wow. company when we 
actually just wanted a hundred thousand dollars. So it was definitely one of those things like, hey, we did this, right? Everyone was like, oh, great, this is a great thing. Let's still raise the fund. If we have any deals, we're going to present it to the collective. But I was like, I don't think that we're going to be able to raise that fund as fast as we had earlier anticipated. And pursuing this thing that we just validated might be the best option. So then comes the question of, look, if you're raising a fund, you get management fees to be able to run your operations and all of that. So everyone was like, if we're going to do this, how are we fund it? And I said, we'll charge people to be a part of the community. And I like broke it down. I said, look, if we charge them $1,000 every year for access to like exclusive deal flow and, you know, to be part of this community, I think people will pay. And everyone's like, get out of here. And like, <laughs> <laughs> nobody's ever going to pay you a thousand dollars like deals are everywhere people have access to deals and i said that i feel like sometimes because this is our reality we assume that it's everybody else's reality too that right you know, they have access to the same information that we have they have the same type of network that we have and they know founders so we put it out you know and ask people to start paying to join the collective and that was how like the Future Africa Collective came alive. And that started my investment journey um, because I had to find startups, had to get them sent to the collective, had to ensure that, you know, we were properly diligent in them. And then it all sort of went on from there. So that's the story about how Future Africa started and what my personal background is like. And what I really found out is, look, there's really no path to venture capital investments. Exactly. Some people get an MBA, which is great, but it doesn't have anything to do with being a great VC. Some people transition from private equity or investment banking. But I think the world is more awake to the fact now that it's one of those things where you learn it by doing it. And I think that's why it has been such a heavily guarded profession, so to speak, because all the top people know that anybody can do their job, like anybody can do this. <laughs> it's really not that hard to be an investor. You just have to be good at convincing people to give you the cash to invest in companies, right? So it's one of those things where you can learn the concepts, learn what to do, but ultimately it's more about your personality and people's skills, right? Do companies want to work with you? Are you empathetic? Can you ride with them when things happen? So I think that that was definitely what I realized. I used to definitely have some sort of imposter syndrome. But then I was just like, hey, you don't go to school to be a venture capitalist. There's not a specific skill set. It's about harnessing the things that you really, really know how to do. So it's hard to express in words how epic that, I'm going to call it your investor origin story is. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> there's a way in which, I don't know, maybe I've become jaded in my old age, but there aren't really that many stories that I find inspiring. This one I find really, really inspiring. And the reason why is, is essentially what you just said. Because investing is such a heavily guarded industry, and globally, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say globally, but if you look to Silicon Valley, it seems like it's only 
older white men who went to Harvard and Stanford who yeah. can become VCs. And there's something special about those particular ones that enable them to have the mojo to be able to do it. But you've sort of shared, and I, I really hope that young folks, or, or not even young folks, any folks who are listening and who've maybe assumed that it's something that they couldn't do will hear your story and understand that the difference between you and someone else who is an investor is that you were able to take, to your point, small steps. So you were told to be an assistant. And normally someone would say, well, why would I do that? That doesn't make any sense. But it was the entree. Because you were not experienced, you were able to see opportunities that were existing, but you wouldn't necessarily have named them as such. So when you said, okay, well, this is what you've been doing. Why can't we set up a syndicate? Someone who maybe had known about syndicates would have said, oh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And then lastly, and this is where we have a parallel, I really appreciate the fact that you came from content creation. I too hated math. And so I ruled out finance very early for that reason and wouldn't have thought for myself that that was possible. So bottom line is I just really, really appreciate the fact that you were able to problem solve and innovate your way to what is now becoming a pioneer in introducing new democratized models. But let's jump into that. So can you tell us a bit about Future Africa's core thesis and your structure and why it's structured the way it is? The core of our thesis is Africa has a lot of problems. Like you don't need a socia to tell you that. It's kind of very obvious. <laughs> but are we going to sit around and say that because these problems exist, we're all done for, we're going to hit our heads on the wall and not do anything. No. Africa's biggest challenges also have the opportunity to be Africa's billion-dollar businesses. And there's a book I really, really love. It's called The Prosperity Paradox. And in that book, the author explains how in the early 2000s, the rest of the world was kind of like had taken mobile connectivity for granted. But in Africa, the story was different. Maybe rich people had access to like, in Nigeria, you would call it Nitel, or people had landlines at home, or people had have to walk to really far places if they wanted to make a phone call or international connections, that sort of thing. And a really interesting man out of England called Mo Ibrahim thought to himself and, and said, it really shouldn't be that farmers have to harvest their products and get to the market just to find out their usual customer isn't interested in buying it off them. If they had phones, they wouldn't have to make that journey. They could call and find out. But it was almost like you have to be wild to think that giving farmers in Africa mobile phones is something that is scalable. How are they going to afford it, right? But he, he, he had a plan. So he took equity from some firms and worked to create Celtel. And the model here was to buy pay-as-you-go credit. So whereas in the US or in the UK, you would have a phone line and you're, you pay the bill at the end of the month or something. Here, 
because of the specific situation, you could buy call minutes. So for as little as less than a dollar and be able to make your phone calls. And that really just changed the um, landscape. GSM, as it was called then, became something really ubiquitous. And right now in Africa, the telco industry is actually a billion-dollar industry. But it took one man looking at the problem and not being overwhelmed by it and trying to innovate around it to birth that industry and bring it into the modern age and not as a government's regulated entity. So that's at the core of our thesis, like how do you leapfrog Africa's biggest challenges today? Mobile money is such a big thing in Africa. We had mobile money before America had Apple Pay. And it's just because of the unique challenges that are faced here, where the easiest way to identify people is probably with their SIM cards right? Delivery logistics is so easy here. Like literally on your phone, you can get a courier and your stuff will be with you in an hour. I don't think that's possible in many places in the world, right? Not at all. So we've been able to solve our problems and make them global business opportunities. But I think that Taking this to the next level is what really needs to be done. And that's the core of our thesis. And by so doing, building a future where purpose and prosperity is within everyone's reach. And here's what happens when you create what we call markets creating innovation. You create wealth. People get jobs. Think of the telco value chain. You have the people who sell the phones. You have the people as a then who were selling the SIM cards. You have people who became able to send like their kids to school, buy property, just of selling airtime, like recharge cards and becoming distributors for that. It created a whole value chain that people could plug into. And it's the same thing in other industries. So it's not really talk of like disrupting or anything like that, but more of how do you solve these problems? How do you create prosperity in Africa? Where we're really looking for people who are dogged about solving Africa's most difficult problems and turning them into global business opportunities. Now to the second part of your question, how does that fit into our model? I already gave a bit of a background as to why, you know, we're set up the way that we're set up. But we've actually found out that, and I think the rest of the world is catching up because it's suddenly become a trend to have a community as part of your VC, community yes. of angels and all of that. So you could call that divine foresight, but it helps you not only be able to pull together capital, but also have a network of people who have deep expertise in all of these spaces that can provide help, guidance, and support to these founders and entrepreneurs who are building these businesses. So that's definitely a plus. The other thing is that it also gives the founders sort of like a community that can rally around them, not just from a, hey, here's what you need to do perspective, but because they are actually invested in them, invested in their success. So I think that is something that is really, really, really powerful. The other side of it is for too long, a lot of people have been caught out of systems that can actively create wealth for them. And one of the easiest ways to 
creates wealth is to own part of companies. You don't get it by being a customer. And if you're buying it on the stock market, you're probably a bit too late. It's by actually being part of the founding you know, investors, so to speak. I think in the U.S., or in Europe, that's something that is very common. Wealthy people there are sort of caught up to it. And it's almost even a status symbol to say that they are an angel investor in places like San Francisco because they understand the concept of it and how that risk can translate to immense reward. But that asset class is not something that is very common here. Only the very wealthy people might have access to it. And it's, in fact, often through probably family offices. And they have family offices in the U.S. that do all of this for them. So just giving that opportunity to everyday people here to be part of the wealth creation story and get access to wealth creating opportunities is also something that is important to us. Like who is going to own our collective future when we build it? We're not opposed to like foreign capital. In fact, we welcome it because it just helps us move even faster and give the industry more value. But at the same time, I think that it's also extremely important that you have African angels who are invested in these companies and who in a few years can say, yeah, I became a millionaire because I wrote a $5,000 check into this company back in 2020. Yes. I mean, I, I (laughs) I co-sign everything, particularly the point on wealth creation. I think it's incredibly important to underscore. There's a way in which in, in development parlance, there's maybe an overemphasis on reducing something bad. So you're talking about poverty alleviation and things of this nature. But the virtuous cycle is created by value creation. So how can you create wealth? How can you incentivize or develop the opportunities for ownership, which then leads to more investment, which leads to more ownership, it leads to more wealth. But let's dig into the model a little bit more. So the case that you're making for market creating innovations is a compelling one. But one thing that I've personally found confusing about in terms of trying to understand the VC opportunity relates to market sizes and whether or not they're large enough to produce quote unquote VC scale returns. But on the investor side, I'm curious as to why you and your colleagues, your co-founders believe that VC is the best way to fund or support these market creating innovations. I wouldn't say that there's a best way to fund businesses. I would say that there are many ways and a lot of businesses actually have to find what works for them. One thing, every time I'm on a panel or some an entrepreneur asks me how to get funding for their business, the first thing is, do you actually need funding that you're giving equity in exchange for? Right. It seems really sexy to say, Hey, I raised a couple million dollars. (laughs) But what most people don't realize is that means that I sold X percent of my company to get that money. And now I have to grow really fast to be able to make returns for the people who put that money in. Like those people aren't playing. So as much as we want to support market creating innovation 
and all the nice stuff, we also really want to make money as well. Like that's why we're investing. <laughs> we need financial returns. We need outsized returns. It's just our thesis that market creating innovations can deliver these returns. Do you understand? So I always tell people, look, there are many options to explore. You can take the route of getting debt investments and pay back specific amounts from time to time. There are many grants available for you to validate what you're trying to do. There are also VC funds, PE funds, hedge funds, all of that. So it's really about what what the entrepreneur's goals are, the type of business it is specifically, and who can provide the most value to them at the time. For really early stage people, and when I say early stage, I mean you have an idea You've validated that this is something that people want and will pay for, and you need some money to brew out this idea. And you also need the support and guidance of people who have done this, been there, done this. So one thing about our team is that we've all been operators. Like We've worked in tech companies. We've been able to build businesses ourselves, right? This is a good option for you. But again, it all depends on your goals. And I I love to tell entrepreneurs, please think about it very well. Taking external capital into your business changes the game. It's definitely something that you want to be very conscious of. You have responsibilities to your investors. It's no longer about you or what you feel like doing. You now have to be very structured, very measured. You have to give it your all. It's no more you running the show. So I hope that has answered the question. But it's not about us, the investors, more about the founder and what their goals are. No, it definitely answers the question. At the end of the day, all businesses are different. All founders are different. And so there are a multitude of ways to best support the founders, depending on what they intend to do. I would just like to underscore this point about on the founder side, thinking very carefully about whether giving up equity to build one's business is the best way to go. Because as you mentioned, there are implications And there's a way in which sometimes, to your point, the sexy story about raising money is divorced from the hard reality of what you have to give up to get the cash. And so I think it's important to highlight what that really means. But you'd mentioned the idea of taking the model to the next level. So can you maybe talk about what that means for Future Africa and also maybe talk about the types of opportunities in the realm of market creating innovations that you find compelling? Okay, let me start with the other part, which is what opportunities exist in the market creating innovation world. I think that you could start here. What are the major pillars in any society? You have healthcare, you have education, you know, you have people's financial lives, and you know, that's where fintech comes out from. You have they need to eat. So we'll call that agri-tech. Although all of these are really fancy words to say, like what are the core things that people need? They need to be able to have food, get quality education, delivered really well. And there's a few other things. So I think taking a look at where the biggest gaps exist and where the biggest problems need to be solved in those spaces and working there. And 
To be completely honest, they are very hard problems to solve. Like just thinking about them, you probably instead feel like doing something like building Spotify for Africa because I mean, (laughs) (laughs) like that's very blasé, very clear, seems very sexy, but like solving Africa's actual most difficult problems, it's not a walk in the park. I'll give an example. Right now, the Naira is trading at about 550 Naira to $1. Um, for context, a few years ago, it was just 150 naira to $1. So there has been a 400 naira increase in just a few short years. And what that has meant is that everybody who lives in Nigeria and earns in naira has consistently watched their earning and purchasing power reduce, right? It doesn't matter if you were earning... 500,000 naira last year and you're earning 700,000 naira now. You probably didn't really get a salary increase, right? Because the value of that money hasn't changed much. And we said to ourselves, how do you make it easy for young people in Nigeria, not from wealthy families or anything, but, you know, who are working hard every month to be able to store their wealth and not only store their wealth, grow their wealth, and get access to global investment opportunities. Now, that's a very hard problem because just right out of the door, regulation is staring you in the face. You know, there's no infrastructure to support this. You're basically attracting government attention to yourself. There's a lot that would deter you from that mission. In the same vein, you have people like Dangote publicly declaring that they are moving all their assets out of Nigeria to a family office that is being managed in the U.S. And you're saying to yourself, Mm. look, young Nigerians deserve opportunities and access too. So what does that look like? You've come up with a thesis and it's a really simple problem, right? They need access to investment opportunities, And the first layer for that is probably, okay, how do we help them save their money in the first place? Forget investing. The traditional banking system, interest rates are stupidly low, right? Might as well just put your money under your bed. (laughs) Especially (laughs) if you're not really... Like, that system, the traditional banking system, caters to the super wealthy. They are the only ones who have access to loans. They are the only ones who have access to the best interest rates. Because if you have 4% interest rates, for instance, it probably really works for you if you're a millionaire in Naira. Not so much if you're earning hundreds of thousands, right? At the end of the day, you're going to look at your interest and it's going to be like 1,000 Naira for the whole year. And you're just going to be upset. So it's how do we help them save and get access to great interest, right? And you have companies like Piggyvest and Carrywise, who their core model was helping people save and meet targets and kind of like build a credit history because you don't have a credit system here in Nigeria. And I'm talking about Nigeria, but we actually do invest across Africa. And some of these problems can be copy-pasted to other parts of Africa, while some are more unique and depending on the country. So that's layer one. Layer two is how do you 
help people take this money that they've saved. Okay, I've saved a million naira now. What do I do with it? I leave it in that account. Inflation is climbing almost as high as the interest is climbing. And you have the second wave of what we like to call wealth tech companies coming in to say, hey, look, if you buy stock in dollars, right, the stock is likely to perform really well. We can plug in into a broker in the U.S. and, you know, make it possible for you to be able to buy shares in Amazon, in Apple, in all the things that you use every day already. You know about these companies. You love these companies. You want to own part of them. Just three years ago, that's not something that was possible. But right now, with technology companies, that's something that is possible. One of our portfolio companies, Bamboo does this. Another portfolio company, Chaka, does the same thing as well. And mm-hmm. it opens up the Nigerian stock exchange as well. Because before, the only way you could get access to the Nigerian stock exchange is you need to have a stockbroker. Right. How many young people are going to know where to find a stockbroker in the first place or can even afford to pay the commission that will make it worth the stockbroker's while to serve them. So there's that. Then you also have, okay, stocks are risky, right? You want stable investment assets, or you just want to just keep your money in dollars. Even if you're not getting crazy interest, at least you're hedging against inflation. And you have robo-advisors and asset management companies like RiseVest come and say, hey, we're going to give you access to the U.S., stock exchange, right? We're going to give you access to real estate services. We're going to curate a portfolio for you. Our investment professionals are going to find the best way for your money to work for you. So it's definitely something that the problems just need deep thinking about. And again, I feel like it's still early days. It's still experimentation stage where I definitely feel like our job is to give people the money to actually try to build things, some of which will naturally will fail. And we should be comfortable with that happening because we're still trying to build and we're still trying to discover what works and what doesn't. But when you're investing, you're really investing in the founders who are building those field companies and learning really fast what works and what doesn't. And will build like the billion dollar businesses of tomorrow. Well said. So in terms of failing and learning as we round up here, so Future Africa today has three main components, the fund, the collective and themed funds. So what challenges have you encountered in deploying that model? And you'd mentioned earlier that before Future Africa is Future Africa, you are going to respond to the question, what happened to the future? But now you're building the future. So as you look forward, how do you see Future Africa evolving in terms of structure, mission, etc.? What will it look like for you? Yeah, I'll answer the challenges question first. <laughs> there are times I have cried <laughs> because like <laughs> this whole thing just seems so crazy and like why? Why am I even doing this? And again, this is where faith comes in and I talk to God, I pray, and and he tells me, Look, you gotta be focused on the mission. You have to keep your eyes on the mission. But Number one challenge has been, given that we're raising this capital from individuals, we don't have as much liquidity as we would if we had raised an institutional fund. Does that make sense? Which is we're seeing more deals, 
than we have the capacity to deploy. Also, because our structure, so it might be useful to break down the structure a bit. We have the Future Africa Fund, which is structured as a quarterly fund. It's something called a rolling fund. That's a recent phenomenon. And that just means it's like a traditional venture fund. But instead of only raising capital once and calling it a day, you have the benefit to keep raising capital into that structure. So every quarter, people can decide to invest in the fund, right? And we started the Future Africa Fund in July 2020. And till date, we have raised and deployed roughly $2 million in that fund, right? In every cumulatively. But it hasn't been easy because you have to manage for timelines. So I'll just tell you what's happening right now. Right now, we have a pipeline worth about $750,000, all founders that we want to invest in great deals, but we can't deploy the money because we've simply just exhausted the money we have to deploy for this quarter. So if we're going to deploy, we have to wait till October. It's not the best position to be in, even though founders are really gracious and they hold the, the slots open for us because you know they just know that we're a great partner to have and we start working with them to provide value from day one. But it's not nice. It's not fun to manage those timelines. Sometimes I wish like we had just raised five million in the beginning mm-hmm. and called it a day and know exactly how much we have and you know we can work to deploy that. There's that. There's also the fact that with the collective is crowdfunding. We're sending out a new deal every few weeks. It takes a while for people to be able to wire in their funds and we close out the deal. And one challenge that we've had, especially for investors who live here in Nigeria, is it's almost crazy getting money into the U.S. right now. And all you know, our fund is domiciled in the U.S., all the accounts are in the U.S., you know, the investments are made in dollars. So that has definitely been something that has been a hassle. Sometimes, you know, founders are telling you, look, the last possible day that we can accept this money is XXX date. And in the midnight of that day, you're still trying to ensure that everybody's wire comes in, the bank doesn't lose anybody's money. So that's definitely something very stressful as well. The third thing is just simply like investor education and the fact that even though we have a track record, one of the best track records in the market, actually, if you look at it on an objective numbers basis, sometimes people still just invest in their friends. We've been in talks with institutionals and at the end of the day, it just comes down to who went to Harvard, who went to Stanford, who is whose friend, who knows who. There's still that. So it's definitely a challenge that is difficult to walk through. And then another real challenge is that we found out that the investing world is designed for only people in the United States. Like it's almost as if they're the only ones who would ever be interested in investing in technology assets or technology companies. And how do I mean? It's things like the accreditation criteria. It's things like how to verify that people meet that accreditation criteria. It's things like the type of people who are allowed to invest in startup companies. And it's just tough to manage. 
that for international investors, especially investors in emerging markets. Do you understand what I mean? So I think yes. this is a good segue into what the future looks like. For me, what the future looks like is building solutions that make it easy for investors in emerging markets to invest in technology assets. Right now we have something, but the process is cumbersome, right? I don't want to ever tell people, no, they can't invest just because they don't make $200,000 a year. Like that's an insane amount of money to ask somebody who is living here in Nigeria to right. be making. That's, you know, millions and millions of naira. And sometimes they have the $5,000, right? They've saved it up or they've pulled it for, from their friends. They should have the opportunity to be able to invest in this asset. Like by Nigerian and African standards, they are high net worth individuals. They are working great legal jobs. Sometimes it's things like the KYC that drops them off. Like they are making that money, but, you know, according to U.S. rules and U.S. laws, it's just tough to have them invest in the companies or invest in the funds. Do you understand what I mean? Yes. So just creating solutions that make it easier for people, no matter where they are in the world, to invest in technology companies is something that is really, really, really very important. And I think that's the next, that's the direction that we're heading towards. It's like this opened up our eyes to a new problem of how in the very structure of the world, it's almost like only a certain category of people will ever have the opportunity to be wealthy because of all of these rules. You know, I actually had to pause, although it probably doesn't sound like I paused, but I actually had to pause after you said that last statement because it's a really, really powerful and sobering statement. You basically said that the processes and infrastructure and rules that seem to be designed to enable a certain segment of the global population to become wealthy exclude pretty much everyone else. Yep. Which is, which is terrifying, actually, when you think about it. But to your earlier point about thinking about huge problems as opportunities, I was thinking the whole time, you know, this is a business. <laughs> Someone that someone needs to start. That's the next business that we're going to build. Right. And it makes sense. It makes so much sense. So you very craftily answered the first of my closing questions, which is around trajectory and what you see for the future. So the last question I'm going to ask of you is the other thing beyond trying to figure out where African tech and venture is heading is to crowdsource the soundtracks. So I'd like to invite you to suggest or to recommend a track and explain why you selected that track. Oh, no. I definitely didn't see the part of <laughs> because <laughs> This is where I'm probably going to have an issue because I definitely don't listen to a lot of contemporary music in that sense. Wow. Oh, <laughs> can I can I recommend books instead or probably a podcast? Please. Okay, I'll recommend the Future Africa Invest in the Future podcast. It's really great. And I'm not just saying it because, you know, it's an in-house production. We never did give up on telling African stories. We just found better ways to do it. We talked to founders, investors about what it means to build the future of Africa. You can find it anywhere that you listen to podcasts. 
books already mentioned the prosperity paradox, but also read anything by Chimamanda. She's a really great Nigerian author. Love her a lot. I do like, I really enjoy reading fiction. The Bible is also always a great recommendation if you're looking for some wisdom as well. Thank you so much, Adenike. This conversation was a true gift. I really, really enjoyed listening to your your investor origin story and hearing about how this decentralized model came to be, what you're going to build to usher in the future that we all want to see. It was such a pleasure. I will link the resources that you mentioned in the show notes. But thank you so much for joining me (laughs) for this episode. Thank you. I really had a good time.